Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline, a companion series to the United Ireland podcast, where we talk to great journalists about the stories that matter. Mick Clifford is one of the most experienced and dogged journalists in Irish media. He is a special correspondent at the Irish Examiner and author of several books, including A Force for Justice, The Morris McCabe Story, Bertie Ahern and the Drum Condra Mafia, remember them, which he wrote with Shane Coleman, and the crime novels The Deal and Ghost Town. His upcoming book, Unlocked, out in July, is the story of the prison officer, David MacDonald, with whom he co-wrote the book, detailing what goes on behind the walls of Ireland's biggest prisons. He also hosts the podcast, uh, the Mick Clifford podcast for the Irish Examiner. And uh, Mick's reporting, it crosses an eclectic number of topics, I suppose, over the years. But throughout his career, there's been a broad focus on policing, corruption, transparency, and refusing to ignore uh, inconvenient truths. If there's a theme to mix methods, in my opinion, it's that of staying with the story over a long period of time and unearthing the twists and turns, what lies beneath uh, the workings of institutions within scandals and uh, over corruption until a journalistic investigation has fully realized itself. He often focuses on an analysis of a situation, blending reporting with insights and opinion. And if there's a theme to the work itself, it often seems to be preoccupied with unearthing things unseen, including gravitating towards those who want bad practices and skullduggery exposed. Lately, he's focused his attention on the rolling scandals that have emerged from Umbor Planola, from the governance to the process of appointing board members to the decisions that have been made uh, on various planning issues. It feels as though we are currently at the iceberg tip stage of this story with an awful lot more to unearth as the whole thing melts down, I guess. On this episode of Byline, we'll discuss Mick's career and also hone in on the onboard Planola saga as it unfolds in real time. Mick, we always begin Byline by asking people where they grew up and when the trade of journalism came calling. I grew up in Carson, Kerry. My family moved for a brief period to Donegal and ended up in Cork. I went to UCC and I studied for a degree in civil engineering which is something that surprised a lot of people that ended up in journalism. But I found out that actually it's not that unusual. Um, I worked in engineering for a few years in England, Scotland. Uh, I was never really into it. The reason I did engineering was for the mature reason that I didn't want to work in an office or wear a shirt and tie, which I ended up doing in journalism, which was a horror to me. Uh, Anyway, I drifted over. I went off to Australia with a friend of mine, a friend of mine who's currently actually in of all places, Yemen with the UN, which is, no picnic at all. And uh, I was out there, I kind of, I, I got very into, I was always a bit interested in current affairs. I got very interested in writing. I came back. I ended up going to DCU for a master's, a one-year course there, which was, for me, it was brilliant because it was an introduction because I was coming from completely left field altogether. For, from there, I went into the star as a sub-editor, just spent two years, which I have to say was probably the best uh, training from a writing point of view, I could have asked for. I never would have thought that at the time. Um, 
I remember before I came into it, a mutual friend knew Matt Cooper, who's already making big waves in journalism, and he introduced me to Matt and he had a chat with me. And I remember Cooper saying to me that uh, one of the best written newspapers in Dublin was The Star. Mm. And uh, at the time, I thought he was full of it. He didn't know what he was talking about. That's only an old tabloid. He was absolutely spot on. And I I learned how to write there, to be honest with you. It's really it's fantastic training. Anyway, from there, I worked briefly as a, a business journalist, uh, winging it completely in the independent group. And then I was in Ireland on Sunday, the long defunct newspapers for a while, where I was at one stage a news editor. And that opened my eyes to the fact that I was completely unsuited for any role in management. <laughs> so I never went back there to that stage after. From there, I went to the Sunday Tribune where I met you. You were working there as well. You came in there. I think you started there. I spent what about, I went there in 2000 and I was there till it closed down in 2011. And then I've been with the examiner since I did a Sunday Times. I did a column for a while. Until I was told I was no longer needed there, my uh, I was referencing to my politics. I didn't realize I had any kind of politics that would be objectionable to anyone. But anyway, I uh, so since then, and then I became staff in the examiner soon after that. Very fortunate there um, in that I'm given a lot of freedom to chase the kind of stories you mentioned and given freedom to chase a lot of those. So I feel very lucky uh, in that respect. Mm. What's the role of a of a special correspondent. What does that mean to you and to the examiner? It means being the special one. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I, do you know what it is? It's giving you a title because there's no other title there. I mean, I'm not a political correspondent. I'm not a security correspondent. I'm not an environment correspondent. I can't remember. All I remember is they said that to me when they were going to call that. I said, Grand. So anyway, I'm not being smart, but it, 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 as far as I was concerned, it was literally giving me a title that was not specific to one sector. That's all. Mm. Mm. Before you um, joined the examiner, what stories really kind of hooked you that you remember really getting it, getting into over the years? I spent a very long time down the planning tribune, um, which was an eye opener in a lot of ways. Uh, People today, I think, and younger people in particular, because we have a far more open society than we had even 20 years ago. Like uh, when I grew up, uh, for example, the notion that a politician would go to prison, as Ray Burke ultimately did, would be for the birds. Nobody believed that was possible. Um, the idea that people at the top would be held accountable for anything was just not believed. Uh, and with good reason, because they never were. Then in the late 90s, and it was interesting because it was, it was as the country changed in so many ways, economically, uh, socially, and then things started coming out. And the two big things really had opened things up. One was a story that Sam Smith got about Michael Lowry's finances, which opened up the whole Ben, Tun- ben Dunn thing, which opened up Ali Hahi and the fact that he was on the take most of his career. And along with that, there was this man, James Gogarty, who was who formerly worked from uh, uh, a fellow Carsevine man, Murphy, in, uh, in when Murphy was based in London. Murphy came back here. And Gogarty had a problem. He fell out with Murphy over his pension. Out of that came the whole planning tribunal. And initially, in the early 80s, 
the country was transfixed with this stuff. Now it grew bored with the, and 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 it grew accustomed to it. But I was sent down there and I stayed down there, and I actually um, I found it very interesting along the minutiae of it. At times it got boring, but then again, say I was lucky. I was working for Sunday paper, so unlike the daily papers, I didn't have to report detail every day. I had time to take slightly turn back and take a slightly bigger view of things. So I was very lucky. But it was a complete eye-opener into so many aspects of um, of life, you know? Mm. It's funny because like that moment in, in the 90s where scrutiny became possible with the collapse of the moral authority of the Catholic Church and all of the scandals started to bleed out into all of these aspects of power. And we're seeing you know, an echo of, of that now, you know, with political engagement, begetting scrutiny, begetting demands of accountability. And that's just kind of rippling across pretty much every institution in, in the state, really, in every, in every aspect of the state. It is. I think the difference now is we're also part of a bigger picture in, uh, to some extent, you know, liberal democracy, as it was known since the end of the Second World War, is to some extent on really shaky grounds now. So coming out of that is very anti-authority feeling, much of which is justified. But there's also dangers there in trying to baby out of the bathwater. And I think we're definitely going through a period of that at the moment. And, and it is interesting in one way. And we're, you know, and it is particularly interesting in this country because we're not being affected here by it the way they are in countries like the US, the UK, Eastern European countries, France even. So, I mean, we're fortunate in one way, but it's good that there is far more questioning of authority now. The problem is that we don't go too far. And uh, from a start, like, for example, I've heard people, this, this is the most corrupt kip in the world. I mean, that's ludicrous. If you said that to me 20 years ago, I might have said, yeah, maybe, because we've never uncovered any of it. But a lot of it's out there. There are particular types of corruption that are unique to a small, intimate society that we have here. Absolutely. And there's particularly insidious elements. But it's not the most corrupt, Kip. And But the, the job of journalism, to my mind, is to root out the corruption, but to have uh, some bit of perspective on exactly how it is. And also to root out what a lot of people would regard as the boring elements of corruption. Like you mentioned Bor Planola. Now, unless people have come into contact with Bor Planola, they don't really view it as being at the front line of um, of what's shaping society. And similarly, a lot of that stuff went on in the planning tribunal when I covered that. There's more visceral stuff that people can relate to. So, you know, from that point of view, but you're right, they, 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 there's a, things are in flux in a big way at the moment. Mm. As that time in the late 90s. Yeah, and it's a, I suppose it's about finding that balance of people desiring kind of radical change and new systems while also not undermining the social contract, the fabric that actually keeps us all together. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky time. Let's talk about, um, you mentioned you, you came up against uh, the, the Sunday Times' perce- uh, perception of your politics. Um, what, how would you characterise the personalities, the institutional personalities of each of the papers you've worked for? Jesus, might be doing the leaving cert there. Huh? Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, okay, take the Tribune. I mean, the Tribune was a fantastic home for me. Uh, it was a very natural place. I suppose left the centre slightly outside the establishment as such, you know, that kind of way. Um, 
very unfortunate in the financial scenario whereby it was basically kept alive by the independent group. Uh, and I would contend certainly at its very later stages, I don't think the independent group had any uh, influence over it. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, that's the tribute. Sunday Times, page that, you know, it's Sunday Times, it's sort of right of centre. Uh, right wing in this country seems to me liberally, uh, socially liberal, but economically conservative, which is interesting because in most other countries conservative, both socially and economically. But I think that Sunday, the examiner, I look, I enjoy the examiner. I maybe I'm, I'm only measure. I think it's a bit of an outsider about it. Uh, it strives to be a bit different. It has uh, something I've been fascinated with since um, not so much when my time moved Cork. When I when I left Cork and I went abroad, I never realised this Cork thing of them seeing themselves as being so separate. I think I got I, I got in under the fence, as I say. But I, I actually enjoy that. I I, I I like that kind of thing for the examiner. So it's you know that kind of way. So it, it, it's a bit. Different. I don't think there's massive differences. Or put another way, I don't think. Like the Sunday Times, I got the impression that. Uh, there was a feeling that I was not um, as uh, as right on politically as they might like. But then you look at somebody like Justine McCarthy, and I think you know the same can be said about Justine very easily. Um, but in general terms, I think there's a bit of diversity there. I, I, like some people could argue that's what, what's what's lacking to some extent is any representative strand of perhaps the more socially conservative elements in the country. How much of that is out there, I don't know, but you have to assume there's some of it out there, you know. But So, I mean, I, I don't know if there's that big uh, personality among the Irish newspapers, as you would have, for instance, in the British newspapers, you know. Mm, it kind of echoes the political, um, the party political landscape in a way. There's a lot, of, so. a lot of stuff in the middle, little bits bleeding out left exactly. and right of it, yeah. I think that's pretty spot on, yeah. Um, you and Shane Coleman wrote a book on Bertie Ahern. Uh, how do you think that political era differs from today's? Oh, very good question. Like, as I say, that the, the early 80s were a time when stuff was coming out, uh, which was, you know, on the other side of that kind, it was also a time. I tell people that to some extent, I think I feel like I missed the boom. And what I mean by that is, well, first of all, as you know yourself, when we were working in the Tribune, you weren't getting paid that much. So we <laughs> no. weren't making much money. But also, because I my head was stuck down in Dublin Castle, I I, I started to miss the uh, the contours of what was going on in terms of the way the country was changing. But the big difference, I think, is that thing I referenced earlier. It was politically stable in a way that it's not now. It was, I mean, you had Bertie running the scene and... He was the great ventriloquist, like, you know, he, he was everything. His famous statement at one stage himself and Joe Higgins were the only two socialists in the doll. And at the same time, he was standing back and letting Charlie McCready, who to me was progressive Democrat in Fianna Fáil clothing, along with the rest of the PDs at that time, he was letting them dictate the whole pace. And it is one of the great imponderables that would have happened if Labour hadn't cocked up so much. Well, they, I don't know if they cocked up, but just... The way the '97 election went, if, if it had ended up being Labour Fianna Fall, um, would we have had a different country? A lot of my suspicion with those kind of things, no more than 
at, at the beginning, the, the birth of the state, I, I'm very sceptical as to whether things would have been all that different if there were different personalities in there. But I think there's no doubt that the whole, it's nearly like the place went mad because we had a bit of money for the first time ever. And that contributed to, um, to, the, to the, the deeper crash that, that occurred in the country. But, and it was also, in fairness, it was also a time when the country was becoming more socially liberal, definitely, as well, you know, from that point of view. Um, Bertie then had this thing hanging over him, the tribunals, and he, I think it's fair to say he got ensnared. Um, there was very little there to connect him to anything really untoward in planning. But as a result of his money issues and how he came into money, that's what ensnared him. Uh, and it was interesting from that point of view, because as I say, the Planning Tribunal started out looking at one individual, Ray Burke, but it soon became obvious that there was so much going on that it started spreading out into all areas of public life. And that's how it ensnared Bertie. Um, and the, <laughs> the other thing you could say is, for the man who had overseen what drove us into the recession, in one way, he was lucky in that he had to leave six months afterwards when the clean-up job had to be done and that was left to, um, to Brian Cowan. Mm. I saw um, the portrait of Brian Cowan that is currently hanging in the RHA uh, this week. And it's so... It's such an interesting portrait because he's just kind of clasping his hands and, and he's looking over to, to the right in this kind of... Um, nervous kind of disposition and really that kind of hospital pass um, that Bertie gave to him was was quite something. In my opinion, Bertie, no, everybody makes their own luck, but he had such a wind of luck behind him. Allied to his capacity for getting on with people and, and, and being able to hide his ego, which is a fair achievement for leading politicians. But he still had a huge amount of luck Equally to me, uh, uh, Brian Cohn, and I know he gets a bad I feel no one had as bad a luck as him. Not only what he was left with, but in terms of his own capacity to handle that at that time, presumably an awareness of how young his father was when he died, the stress that was involved. And, you know, I don't think anybody could suggest he did a very good job. But I think, as you said, it was a hospital pass he got. And um, you'd wonder... You'd wonder even in small things how different the country might have been if he was running it when Bertie was running it. But them's the breaks, like, you know. Mm. One of the really big stories that you worked on and stuck with for a long time um, was the, the Morris McCabe saga. Uh, can you refresh people's memories, cliff notes, as to what that was about, why it became so big? Yeah, well, I suppose... A little what it was about rather, rather than chronologically, because chronologically it happened in reverse. But effectively, Morris McCabe was a guard sergeant in Baileyborough County Cavan. He was highly regarded. He was asked to go there because there had been problems to sort them out. Um, it was an area where it went through supers very easily, superintendents, which meant there was very loose management. And interestingly, all the four supers that, that served above McCabe when he was there all spoke highly of him initially before entering any of the shit at the fan, so to speak. Um, Anyway, I think his troubles started when a very troublesome guard, the daughter of this guard, made an allegation that was found to have absolutely no substance whatsoever. And the problem was the way it was handled within the guardie. It wasn't handled in the sense that 
here's a man who it looks like has been done wrong, who's a very valuable guard, who's doing good work for the force, and we need to stand by him. It was handled more like this is potentially toxic, it's potentially a bomb. I wouldn't, they weren't saying throw him under the bus, but they certainly had no empathy for somebody who found themselves in the most unenviable situation possible. Out of that, um, McCabe, I think his attitudes changed within the force and stuff he had seen, he um, he was pretty cheesed off at it as well as the way he'd been treated and he began reporting it and he reported some terrible policing that went down when he was trying to ensure that the place was run properly. That was not properly investigated. He, he was treated as a pariah, a rat, literally at times he's called a rat. Uh, then... Another issue arose about penalty points and the way they were being abused. That was the thing that first came into the public domain. He followed through on that. That ultimately brought it into the political domain through the Public Accounts Committee. And from that, um, the, the people started tumbling. Um, the Garda Commissioner went. Alan Shatter resigned. Now, Alan Shatter, to be fair to him, he'd been named in a report that was subsequently uh, he went to the courts over and was subsequently shown that he wasn't treated properly there and he shouldn't have been criticised as he was in the report. His name was cleared effectively. But at the time he resigned, and I think he resigned under some pressure from the Taoiseach because the whole issue was becoming so toxic. And um, ultimately then there was this other issue. He went into Tusla. Uh, there was such a series of um, coincidences that ended up a scenario whereby McCabe was literally painted within Tusla in official documents as somebody who was suspected of genuine child abuse, which was completely an attack on his character. Out of all that, between the, the domino effect, a tribunal was set up that ultimately cleared McCabe, which showed how Tusla had been highly unprofessional, put it at its most least. And it also showed that the Garda Commissioner, Mark Callanan, along with his spokesperson, Superintendent Dave Taylor, had, had um, effected a, a, a campaign to smear... McCabe within the Garda force. He was long gone by then. Ultimately, civil cases he brought were settled and he was paid compensation and he's, I think he's trying to get on with his life now. Mm. Do you think that broadly, you know, you said earlier um, about the planning tribunal that like it started off with this one thing on Ray Burke and then, you know, different lids are lifted on different things and all of a sudden you realise, holy shit, there's, there's just so much potential corruption here. And I think that that's what people feel sometimes when you say, okay, Ireland by the bar of various jurisdictions is not the most corrupt kip in the world. But there is a sense that there's a lot of magical thinking that goes on in our society, that we don't necessarily delve into certain things. And when lids are lifted, the informality around how Irish business and politics and stuff is done lends itself to um, corners being cut and favours being given and all that kind of stuff. Do With regards yeah. to McCabe, et cetera, and I always, you know, the minute people started actually, you know, being held accountable in different ways about that, you know, maybe this is very cynical, but I, I do think that that is tr often about trying to close things off. Do you think on the whole that the, the Garda Shikona is, is a corrupt uh, organisation? Big question, Una. Um, there are aspects to the Gardaí that are corrupt. For me, the thing from the McCabe case, more than anything, there was two elements. So one, the complete unprofessional policing element to it. 
and there's issues of that in that still in the Gardaí. In some sections, absolutely not. In other sections, definitely. And there is definitely that element to it. The second thing is, use the phrase, the cover-up. When anything goes wrong, when there's shoddy policing, it, it is not a question of, okay, we need to delve into this, learn from it, and ensure it doesn't happen again. The instinct is entirely, we need to brush this under the carpet because the next time I go for promotion, this might be a black mark on my uh, list, rather than saying, if I'm shown to um, have dealt with this properly and cleaned it up, then I can move on. There is definitely that element of corruption, and I think that persists in a lot of ways. Um, Yeah, and in in a broader sense, I think that applies to a lot of things. The the cover-up is often worse than any corruption. The, the, the thing in business overlapping with politics, yes, I'd say there's some of that there. The, 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 there is, definitely. Um, I think politicians are far more careful than they used to be. I think they're scared stiff in some ways. Sorry, sometimes, other times, I can't believe how stupid. There's the odd time when something arises and what strikes you is when you think is what at stake, when you think what somebody believes themselves to have gained or to potentially gain from something, and you look at the risk they took in this day and age, I can't believe the stupidity of it. And I think a lot of that, or let me put it another way to you, if we didn't have the tribunals in the audience, particularly the planning tribunal, can you imagine the level of corruption there would have been in planning mm. at a time when things were going up all over the place? So I think those kind of things have acted to put the frighteners on to some extent. But, yeah, the kind of, the, the, there's a certain kind of corruption there. I don't think it's the standard, I'll take the money, I'll, money for favours, to put it that way. It's, it operates on a far more perhaps sophisticated way and perhaps there are circles, maybe class-based circles in some ways, that operate along that. But uh, it, it, you, you can still root it out, I think, at this stage, you know? Mm. There's an insidiousness to it, I suppose, in in in, mm. in some ways. But I also think that, like, the narrative that um, when you see something being handled really badly uh, and it just looks like corruption, and and oftentimes the public, you know, look for corruption, look for conspiracy, which can be there an awful lot of the time, as you say, stupidity and incompetence. Um, and that's that's actually it's not that that's like a, a, any lesser. It goes to show the the lack of caliber in a lot of people in in high positions in public life and in Irish society in general. Absolutely, a very typical example. The thing last year, Catherine Zappone. Now there was an issue whereby uh, she wasn't even a member of Fine Gael. Uh, she had done some work in the UN, but it does look like uh, someone in Fine Gael, maybe because they knew her from being in the cabinet, would give her that job. What was there to gain for anybody in Fine Gael there? Zero. I mean, it wouldn't come back down to the party. It wouldn't mean, do you know what I mean? Jobs for the boys and girls or whatever. Yes, somebody thought there was nothing wrong with this. Now, that to me is the height of the kind of stupidity I was talking about. Yes, a lot of people see in that space corruption. And uh, I don't I don't think it's that, but I, I think it needs to be rooted out. Absolutely. But I don't think it's reflective of, of a, a very corrupt um, attitude to these things. Yeah, I guess there's a distinction to be made in, in certain instances between corruption and cronyism, right? Well, cronyism is for both form of corruption in some ways. Like, yeah. Oh, I mean, at, at the same time. But it's fact, not a conspiracy, let's say. Yes, exactly. And the other thing about the other thing about that is 
look, we're living in the age of the conspiracy theory. Uh, and I, I think that that's one of the big problems we have at the moment, particularly on social media, where narrative is all irrespective of the facts. If your narrative is that the place is irredeemably corrupt, then irrespective of the facts, that is going to, you, you're going to fashion the facts in your mind to, to suit that narrative. Uh, and I think that's where we've changed a bit, uh, not just here, but uh, broadly speaking. I mean, you think about, look, look at the USA. How can, how can, what is it, 60 or 70% of Republicans believe that the last presidential election was stolen? How is that possible? That they can believe it? That's that, 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 that scary level of um, conspiracy theory, you know? Mm. Let's get to something that is exercising people an awful lot um, in in this zone that you're talking about, and and the type, the way that you're the work that you, the type of work that you do covers corruption an awful lot, or corruption adjacent uh, movements and events. I'm talking about on board Planola, of course. Mm. Now, for years, um, many people have looked on with curiosity at some of the odd decisions that have been made in on board Planola. We also have this, I mean, it used to be quite fashionable to talk about, you know, be anti-Quango was, was a moment for the last for about four years. And who are these people on these boards and these state boards and blah, blah, blah. And especially in Dublin City um, after 2011, when planning was, was changed so uh, significantly in, in, in many ways, and we began to see this kind of distorted development. And it felt that on the face of it, when you looked at this pretty like closed shop, unelected, small group of individuals who wielded huge power over things that were really, really significant, right? So, you know, the built realm. Um, it's always a bad sign when a small group of people hold a huge amount of power. Um, well, how long, or for, oh, sorry, why has it taken how long for this thing to be interrogated, for someone to rub their hands and go, something looks a bit weird here. It's time to open this Pandora's box. Yeah, very good. Very good point. And funny you say it, when I think of it, how long, well, let me put this with you, the current um, controversy over it, in my mind, is due to the fact, largely, that one individual on the board was so accustomed to the power he enjoyed that he became careless to a point of stupidity. Mm. I mean, nothing has been determined, but from what we know, for example, about the alleged conflicts of interest that Paul Hyde has, beyond stupid isn't the way of describing it because there are so many instances, if you were just talking strictly about outcome, that, you know, he could have just absented himself and it would have been exactly the same outcome. Mm. But it just shows you that the level of um, unaccountable power that was there led to that. Now, having said that, that's the current thing. Um, I wrote a piece last week after, and one of the people I'd spoken to was Frank McDonald. Frank had uh, submitted a complaint last November before any of this blew up about the direction in which the board was going, what you were just referencing there, Una, that kind of thing. Um, and you see, I suppose you say, the problem there is, and I was just reading back on some stuff, actually a piece I was reading today from 2009 was in the Irish Times, where somebody was pointing out that all the institutions that had fallen, the banks, government, quangos, etc., the one thing that seemed to have integrity and rise above it all was on board Planola. And a number of people have said that to me since, that 
it was the one institution that seemed to be impervious to all the change that was going on, which was a good sign. The largest, and it was also pointed out to me that during the boom, when there was so much horrendous planning, that the board actually put the brakes on the work excesses of it. So they did some very good work up then. It would certainly seem that since 2016-17, and particularly when the likes of the strategic housing development stuff came in, whereby if you want more than, if you're developing more than 100 units, you go straight to the board, you don't go through the local authority. Therefore, and that changed the function of the board from an appeal board to a planning authority. Mm. The other issue there was, I think, there's a certain element of group thing. All of the current appointees, bar the latest one, who was appointed just a few months ago, who, and I think it's uh, she's uh, Dara Kaliri's sister-in-law, person with exemplary uh, credentials in terms of getting on the board. She was an inspector previously, she's planning experience and all. Apart from her, every one of them has been a, a Fine Gael appointee. Now, that of itself shouldn't matter. But you have to wonder, did that feed into what a lot of people, and I mentioned Frank McDonald, people like that, and you've referenced it yourself, in terms of what people have perceived as being... Uh, an approach to planning that seems to be come down far more on, to use that phrase, pro-development than any observations or objections that people are making on the basis of what they perceive as bad planning. And I don't know whether that's fed into it or not. The other thing that may well have fed into it is the nature of the board. It's become very technocratic. So everybody on there has some form of planning or architectural background. Now, that's not the way the board was designed to operate. Like, give you a brief comparison, county councillors have a, a reserve function whereby they have a say over a county development plan. If every councillor was a planner, if every councillor was an engineer, if every councillor was a, a labourer, whatever, there'd be a problem, there'd be groupthink. And, and that's what has happened here because it was designed to reflect society at large. Yet it seems to, and if it reflects, for example, if it's made up completely of people who are associated with planning, and if there are particular strands of thought within the planning sector, and they all go for that, yet those strands of thought may not be reflected in society in general. Mm. A problem, and some people would say that that, that, that has fed into what has occurred here. All of that is apart from the granular stuff like uh, to the extent that it seems that inspectors are asked to change their reports, which had never been done before, to the point we reported the examiner that the inspector's representative had complained to management about that, and a lot of stuff like in, in that vein. So uh, the wheels are coming off, I think, unfortunately, because um, it, it's a pretty important institution, you know? Mm. So we seem to have a case of, like, as you describe, an ideological bubble and a technocratic thinking bubble within a thing that is meant to have a broad enough vista of, of the built environment. But let's zoom out for a second. And for people who are coming to this story cold, what is actually going on? What's going on is the vice chairman, the, it started with the vice chairman, uh, Paul Hyde. Uh, the Ditch website reported first that uh, he sat on a decision about a strategic housing development in Cork and Blackpool and Cork, where him and his father owned a company that had land 50 metres away from it, which would constitute a very 
real, I'd suggest, potential conflict of interest in any way making a decision on that. It then emerged that he also signed off on an appeal taken by his sister-in-law and, and his brother, which was in his sister-in-law's name in a house in Sandymount, um, and, and went against the main recommendation from the inspector in that respect. And uh, again, he has written to the board saying that he didn't realise it was his sister-in-law in that. Those were the initial ones. It has also emerged, for example, that the director of planning in there has been speaking at conferences, developer conferences, and giving what some might term as advice, or, or, or more importantly, uh, betraying what perhaps are her own opinions, which is under the code of conduct she's not supposed to do. So all of that has fed into it as well. And then along with that, there, there's also an issue over another board member who uh, got involved in cases that were close to her own home. There's a potential conflict of interest there. Just to give a contrast, I've, I've been told by a number of people, of one, one board member who retired a few years ago, or he did his term, he used to be involved in Kildare. He never, anytime Kildare came up, he said, sorry, I can't have anything to do with it. His wife is from Donegal. Anytime Donegal came up, he said, sorry, I can't get involved in that in here. That's the kind of standard that used to apply in terms of ensuring there was no conflict of interest and the public could retain conflict. It would seem that that being gone is one major issue, and that has fed into a lot of the others. And as I say, some people would suspect that it has very much become very pro-development as opposed to being seen as to be completely neutral. How does the political um, influence on planning in the past decade impact this? Because what on board Planola is adjudicating in 2021 or 2022 or will be next year is very different kind of planning than it would have been, um, you know, filtering objections through or whatever, 10, 20 years ago. And so we have this context created by um, political decisions and policy decisions, particularly due to ministerial orders that override local area plans and along with new financial models from institutional investors and corporate developers, the kind of reframed building as this mechanism by which uh, profits can be returned to shareholders as opposed to actually building stuff that we need and corporate developers and all that kind of stuff. And you have things like build to rent, the SHD strategic housing developments, you have purpose-built student accommodation, you have co-living, you have all these new models that have basically been invented that kind of, for me, are like the architectural or the, or the, the development version of how um, mortgage batches were kind of different kind of financial uh, things were invented that preceded the subprime mortgage crash and all that kind of stuff. So you have these kind of mechanisms. You have this political system that made very, very overarching decisions, um, particularly in Owen Murphy's uh, time as, as housing minister. And then you just have this general culture of land speculation and uh, political reticence, why that is to actually for the state to directly engage in, in, in building as it used to. But like how much of the political system is responsible for what's happening on board Planola, do you think? Or do you think, yeah. is it an outlier, you know? Oh, no, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think it's usually down to the political system and directly down to the housing crisis. Yeah. In my mind, the, the two big issues in that respect are the, the changing in the um, in the standards for apartments brought in initially by Alan Kelly and subsequently by Owen Murphy. That was 
form that the government made that national policy. And that was in conflict with development plans, which were brought in by locally elected, effectively locally elected councils. So you had a conflict there. And that created a big conflict, particularly in appeals that were brought to Umbor Planola. And that's where some people perceive that the board saw itself in the context of, and if you were to look at the most benign sense, in the context of we're in, we're in a housing crisis, the government are bending over backwards to get as much built as possible. We should assist this. Now, the point you're making is completely valid. That's all very well, but getting what built? Getting shoeboxes, co-living, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd agree with you entirely on that. I'm just saying I could well imagine that perhaps that's what fed into that political element within Umbor Planola. The second element then being, which is very Later, that is the strategic housing developments, which again, the governments are speeding up the planning process, getting more built fast. The irony there, of course, is less than 20% of those that even passed in the strategic housing development have ever been built, mm-hmm. which shows how crazy the, the thing was. But that also, big political decision. And what this is showing, it has been accepted because they've discontinued it, that the strategic housing development was a disaster in every way. But it's showing now the, the real negative impact it had in the internal workings of Umbor Planola. But there's no doubt that the political temperature fed into that. Um, and I suppose you could, I think it's fair to say that that political temperature was driven by a, to a large extent by the fact that we had a housing crisis and that the pressure was on to get stuff built. But it would appear that the government's approach to doing that was to cut the kind of corners that should not be cut and that's what has landed us in, in, in the mess in, in, uh, in that respect and does not seem to have advanced in any great extent the, the idea of, um, of housing, uh, get, get, getting enough affordable, which, of course, the keyword houses for people to live in. Mm. And yet you have a situation where for political capital and, and Michael Martin does this repeatedly and Leo Varadkar does it and Dara O'Brien does it as well. In the doll, any time an Ono Brin for example, stands up, in particular um, Sinn Féin TDs, repeatedly, repeatedly what is thrown back in, in the face of opposition politicians is, well, you refuse, that you object to everything, you know, you're actually standing in the way of, of housing getting built. And there's this political narrative forming from the government that actually um, it's, it's some kind of nimbyism or it's some kind of objection that is actually stopping uh, quality affordable building or quality housing getting through. So that's that's saying something very loud, I think, politically. While at the same time, Ambor Planola keeps losing all these judicial reviews. It keeps ending up in the court and it keeps having its decisions that it has overturned from with from by overturned a council's decision or some Antashka intervention. And then when a case, often an environmental case, is taken. It loses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of the objections, the reality is every party objects. Uh, in terms of lo- councillors, in terms of local politicians, they follow the local sentiment, you know. And now there's, an, uh, there's probably an added element with perhaps in some of the left-wing parties in that they object, and we've seen this in very big developments in Dublin, for the reason that, uh, for example, when there's a proposal to sell public lands to private developer, uh, thinking being they get it built faster. Understand, uh, that's one approach, and fair enough, but the opposite answer to that is no, this should be for public housing, they object to that. So that's the added element. But apart from that, every local uh, councillor objects. And let's face it, uh, 
there's a reality to this too, and that one of the big uh, constraints in terms of all this is people who already have homes who are doing the objecting. And let's be honest about it, you know, and Vincent's in a sweet FA to do with whether or not it's good or bad planning, it's to do with how it impacts some people's lifestyles. But you're right. Um, as I say, they all do that. Of course, it's, it's political knockabout stuff for the government show this at, at, uh, at Sinn Féin. Um, and then, as you say, Borplanola, again, that's back to the strategic housing development. It completely was such a disaster that all these judicial reviews, they, they, they've lost them hand over fist. And again, that is why they've decided to discontinue it, to give up the ghost. Remember, the strategic housing development, this emerged later, was pushed and to a large extent even created and scripted by the, the institutional property um, People, you know, they were the ones who lobbied for it and showed exactly how it could be done. So, but it, it has been a disaster to my mind. It has set back the prospect of bringing closer to the day when hopefully a lot more people will be able to afford to, uh, to buy a home or, or, or live for rent in some way affordable. Mm. Yeah, the dysfunction, the, the dysfunction is really frustrating because obviously so many people were warning against the consequences of things like um, the SHDs and things like BTR and things like, you know, this this conceit that handing over public land to private developers makes things go faster. Well, I mean, I live next to O'Devany Gardens, which has just been sitting, uh, the vast majority of it sitting as uh, as wasteland for years and years and years and years as Bartra kind of pulled the council through the courts, etc. Mick, obviously a lot of this work was kickstarted by the ditch and they deserve a lot of credit for, yeah. for following this story. And you have obviously been doing a, a huge amount of tremendous reporting on it as well. What's going to happen? <laughs> like, where is this going? Yeah, it's a very good question. Like there, there's this um, investigation that this uh, senior counsel, Remy Farrell is doing for the minister for housing that you finish in the next few weeks. Now that's, I won't use the term Mickey Mouse. House, but it is in terms of reference and okay it was in response to the initial stuff that came out and that's fair enough from that point of view but it, it, it really is irrelevant in terms of any type of reform I don't know where it's going to go it, it, it's some now the planning regulators brought forward a major review of the whole structures in there and whether that will do anything is another thing but changing personnel alone won't necessarily change that's not, an ex, that's not a reason not to change personnel it has to be something a bit more. I mean, there's issues even around the appointment of members to the board. Now, there was a review a few years ago that suggested they should be cut through the public appointment service. That's grand in one sense, but then you're back to the issue over, well, are these members supposed to reflect society at large? For instance, how is the baker from Carrick Macross uh, going to get on the board, even though he reflects for example, maybe urban Ireland or aspects of that, if he doesn't, if he has to go through a public appointments process, if you're with me, that doesn't mean the current system isn't flawed. That is very flawed too. So there's all that feed into as well. But I think it's really necessary that it's done fast because it's one of the main things that there needs to be public confidence in. Anybody who lives near a proposed development, who lives near a proposed wind farm, anybody who's trying to develop themselves who want to build stuff, Everybody needs to have confidence in it. It's really important. So they're going to have to bring in some reforms pretty rapid one way or the other. And it shouldn't take that much. Remember, five, six years ago, well, maybe a bit longer, but certainly come back with, for, since we set up in 77, up until you mentioned 2011, it might be then, might be small, but later, it worked extremely efficiently. 
and, and it was a bit of public confidence. So it shouldn't take too much to get it back to that stage, but it certainly has lost its way. There's no question about that, it would seem. Mm. One more aspect of the story that I saw that you were writing about was this very curious um, trend in overturning uh, planning refusals for telecommunications aerials. What's going on with that? Yeah, that's my colleague Keenan Brennan. That, that oh, yeah, telecommunications yeah. aerials around the country, um, in an awful lot of instances, not all of them, but an awful lot of them, the inspector recommended that uh, refusal. A two-person board sat which is highly unusual as well. That's allowable under a 2009 Act, but there was a lot of controversy in the coming in, but two, and the same two people now, which is highly unusual as well. In a lot of instances, they gave the go-ahead. Now, from the outside, you know, you'd have to question that. What's going on there? You know, I, again, is it a question of board members looking at something and being more amenable to what they consider the national interest as opposed to, strictly speaking, national policy or being a, a, an, an arbiter between various um, competing elements, you know? So it's, again, that is something that needs to be examined. But why were the same two people forming a micro board and adjudicating on this stuff? An, an excellent question that I don't have the answer to yet. And I'd be very, I'd be very interested to see when hopefully it is examined, I know it's being, ex- I believe it's being examined in internal review, but what conclusions they'll come to, I don't know. But that is a very good question. And that is also an issue that arises in a number of controversial cases, which is down to allocation of files. Mm. Files are supposed to be allocated on a random basis by the chairman. And there is some suspicion. Uh, no, and the chairman would delegate others perhaps to, to, to allocate the files at times. But there is some suspicion that Perhaps particular board members were allocated particular files and even that perhaps particular inspectors were asked to examine particular uh, cases. And that, again, if there were anything to that, that would certainly be very worrying. Mm. Can you see yourself back down in Dublin Castle over this one, Mick? Oh, Jesus, no, I'm too old for that. I, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll have to give this one a skip. You know, I, I, if I went down there and fall into a chair and I might never get out of it again. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, before you go, um, and thanks so much for, for your, your time on this, is there any story over the years that you just found really, really, really weird that you've never kind of gotten to the bottom of? Oh, geez, only have me on the, I'm, I'm sure there are, definitely. But I can't, I can't think offhand. Um, or anyone that comes back to you that doesn't feel fully resolved. Oh, Jesus, there are, definitely. But I, 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 I can't think of, to give me a bit of, no, it's not, I could, I can't, but there are definitely ones that are definitely that didn't feel fully resolved. Absolutely. There's definitely some. The only thing in that vein is, you mentioned about McCabe and the thing, all that strikes me about, about that story was how I was lucky in my timing in that uh, back in the late 90s I used to I go from the Tribune actually meet this man who became a friend of mine Billy Flynn who was a private investigator and Billy was brought in to the police corruption in Donegal mm. and uh, by the McBurties to investigate it and I had heard and it had been going around it just shows you the power of these things that this was all over nothing that was involved a guard's wife who was off the wall and she was making up all this stuff now, the individual who they were spreading that about turned out to be an extremely brave 
courageous woman, a woman of serious substance. But that was the thing that was being spread. And I had heard it. And I was a lot younger and I bought it. So Billy says to me one day, I've this thing in Donegal, you take a look at it. And I says to myself, well, I don't want to follow up with Billy, but this is all down to some crazy woman, so I'm not going to get involved with it. So I passed it by. Um, then when McCabe came along, I wasn't going to get fooled twice kind of thing, like, you know, oh, but it just shows you that so, so, sometimes you need a second bite at the cherry, you know, but uh, it also shows you. And that, and that thing that was spread about that woman was very similar to the kind of horrendous stuff that was spread about McCabe when he became a, a, an irritant to those in power as well. And it shows you the power. And that's the other interesting thing. The number of people I've met since, particularly guards, who've told me that they heard that stuff at the time and they believed it. It shows you the power can be used to suppress um, the truth coming out in any form, you know? Mm. I mean, there could be entire uh, Netflix series on various unresolved issues in Donegal. Oh, yeah. Oh, in Donegal, in the whole, oh, I mean, you know, and it's just a cat but there's there so many times you, you come away from a thing and you uh, you say the full thing hasn't come out there at all. You know? Yeah. I mean, the planning, the planning report on Donegal that has never been properly yeah. published. Oh, well, that's, and, and that's just one. I the mean, like a... Yeah, yeah. But, but even, um, Planning issues in general and suspected planning corruption at various things around the country. There are untold stories out there, definitely. No question at all. Um, you're not doing a great sell on your opinion that Ireland isn't uh, the most corrupt, <laughs> the most corrupt in the world. <laughs> no, I am. I, it is. It is all small time stuff. You know, I think. Um, I, I genuinely don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to speak. I'm not talking up or anything. But. I, there's, let me put it this way for every time there's one so something that's corrupt there's 10 conspiracy theories uh, alleging corruption mm. and as I said even that stuff that you saw about um, um, I just said you know just give you a very quick example do you remember Golfgate? yeah right what, I couldn't help believing this that story was broken within 24 hours of it occurring by uh, Aoife Moore and Paul Hossford the examiner on Twitter in the weeks after it, the media have the photographs and they're covering them up. This conspiracy theory went out. Like the media broke the story within 24 hours. Yes, the narrative was the media are embedded to politicians. They must be covering up the photographs. The photographs. Is the thing. And there was, a, some, there was something else about who was somebody's guest or who was there, that kind of thing. That's the point they're making, that for, for every... Uh, Corrupt issue are, and the other thing is, corrupt or cock up. There's as much cock up as corrupt, particularly when you do with the likes of the guards and some of the public service. That for every one of those, there's going to be 10 conspiracy theories alleging it. But um, there's corruption there, absolutely. That's what keeps us in business. But I don't think it's irredeemably corrupt. And again, I, me, a lot of that feeds into a kind of a, a populist narrative about the virtuous people and the evil elite, and they're organizing all this corruption. and. At this stage of the game, I don't buy it. Maybe I'm being naive. Jeez, wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> Before you go, Mick, um, what are you working on at the moment? And what would you, if you had unlimited resources and unlimited time, what story would you like to cover that you feel is underreported? Uh, first of all, I couldn't tell you. I did not right? I have to kill you. So <laughs> I leave that one out. Um, what is underreported? Jesus, good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
Probably something to do with planning because it, it, it impacts on on, uh, on people's lives so much. Um, politically, I'd love to know more about any connections between um, po- politics and big business, particularly these institutional investors and that, whether there is anything more in terms of ties in that respect. And, and politically, I tell you as well, politically, <laughs> I'd like to know the full story behind Sinn Féin as well. Whether Sinn Féin, which I think will, if and when they come into government, will make a difference. I don't think it'll be the transformative difference, but they will make a difference, I think. But I wonder whether they are, as they present themselves, whether they have completely moved on from the type of uh, party it was, going back to the time of the, the troubles in the north. And they have definitely moved, absolutely. And they continue to move all the time. We can even see that over the last five years in very different ways. But I just wonder whether, and I think I wouldn't be the only one in that, whether they are as they um, as they present themselves in that respect. I think, there's, right. I think there's more of a story in there, to be honest. But I don't think I'd be the one to get it. No, I mean, I think when with that stuff, I think people... Uh, for when I, I I agree with that uh, pursuit of transparency and all that kind of stuff with regards to that party, I only wish that the same scrutiny was extended to Fine Gael and business, and had would have been extended to Fianna Fáil and 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 the church and the clergy. Well, funnily enough, to be fair, Una, I would disagree with you because I think I think that kind of scrutiny has been extended there. No, it has. It took a long time, some instances, for it to come out. But I don't detect, and I know that there's an article out there that suggests it, a reluctance or a lack of enthusiasm to explore all that stuff. I'll tell you one thing, when I was covering the, all the stuff that, that emerged from the planning tribunal in the, in the 80s, particularly about Fianna Fáil more than Fianna Gael, um, I, certainly in the Tribune, I could see it, and I could see it in other papers, that it was pursued with a lot of vigour. Mm. Um, the institutional stuff with Fine Gael, Jesus, I'd be over the moon of stuff like if I came across stuff like that in the morning. And I don't think that there are lots of other parts to do it. Um, but I know that perception is out there, and I have my own my own theory about uh, why it's put about this thing of the people are down on Sinn Fein. But, but I mean, to me personally, it's just there there are strands of evidence out there that suggest it. And that's why I'd be interested in pursuing that. Mm. The other stuff, the stuff with the likes of institutional investors, that I've tried at times, and I know others who are far more economically literate have tried to um, make more connections there, but they haven't, they haven't succeeded so far. Well, let's see what comes out in the wash as on board the Onboard Planola saga yeah. rolls on. And um, well done on all your reporting on it to date so far, Mick. I look forward to reading more of it. And thank you so much um, for taking the time out to, to chat on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me on that.